dogster, six apart, video egg had these very different strengths and none of it would have worked if we didn't respect each other's strengths and see that there is an opportunity to work towards a common purpose. It wasn't easy. It was a lot of really tough calls along the way. Welcome to the Wicked Hard Decisions Podcast. I'm Jay, your host. Our guest today is Ken Sandy, former VP of product at Masterclass, lynda.com, and one of my old college professors. Ken led the product team at Say Media, where he broke through barriers to bring together three companies and build a culture to last. Along the way, we're lucky to have a few guest appearances from others who were also part of that journey. Let's jump in. Hey, Ken. Thanks for joining the podcast. First question for you. How did you join Say? So Say Media was actually not around at that point. It was called Video Egg, or at least half the company was called Video Egg. Video Egg, about six months prior to me joining the company, I was asked by the then chief operating officer of Video Egg. Uh, his name was Lee Kirkpatrick to speak to the found, to two of the founders, Dave Lerman and Matt Sanchez, they were the chief technology officer and the chief executive officer, respectively. And they were having the usual challenges of shipping, meeting expectations. They'd actually turned over several engineering leaders. And so they were really wanting to learn more about what best of breed kind of product development looks like. I was not actually excited about advertising, but there was really something about Dave's and Matt's and my interactions that I think were, will be pertinent to the discussion today, but they just struck me as people who are interested in learning. There was a real lack of ego. I could tell this was a great place that you could tell great people were, and they were going to be great at attracting other great people. That's great. And I wanted to recap what your growth strategy was at the time. You guys made acquisitions to build a company focused on three pillars. Number one, VideoEgg already was an established ad network. But then number two, the second pillar was around building out or having a publishing platform. And that's where Six Apart slash Typepad came in. And then the third pillar was around acquiring different sources of niche content or niche audiences where brands like Dogster or ExoJane or other ones were able to fill that gap. Is that a good assessment? Yes. We wanted to move more to that end of the scale of creating a true media company. One of the things I find really interesting is how these deals felt like when they came together. I wanted to share something that Dave Lerman, who was a CTO of VideoEgg, shared with me about that first deal, and I would love to get your reaction to it. I remember I was on vacation and I was standing on the beach when my co-founder called to say he wanted to buy Typepad and wanted to do so really quickly. I think I probably sighed, took a long breath, and then asked him to walk me through it. It's tough when you're already deep in the weeds of startup stress and complexity to even contemplate adding all of the, the nuance and complexity of incorporating another business, but it ultimately was the right call. I will definitely build on Dave's comment. Matt Sanchez was the CEO and co-founder. I just admired his ability to put all these pieces together and see what was happening to both businesses and see an opportunity 
to bring two pieces together to create a real step change, to basically move us in an accelerator way, potentially towards effectively a media empire, uh, where, where paths independently were, were not necessarily going to be so great. You know, Matt then asked me to lead the coordination of the merger integration activities, having been through the other side of various acquisitions. I knew that only too well that one of the top reasons why acquisitions and mergers fail is that you don't pay attention to the organizational and cultural component. And you had this disintegration of the things that have been kind of working. You get a culture mismatch, potentially. And you get a lot of employees who were quite happy in, in their jobs, thank you very much, now suddenly disenfranchised. But now I was given a, a real opportunity by Matt to, to, to drive great impact there. That sounds like a great leadership opportunity. You're right that culture plays a big role in the success of a merger. I also think how a merger is announced can play a big role in how it feels to the folks on the ground. And I wanted to share something from Arthur Nichols about how it felt like from his perspective. Before a big event like an acquisition or a merger, you, you just know something is happening. You look to new combinations of people in the large conference rooms. You see leaders who are based in other offices that come to town. And there's a bit of a nervous energy in the air. You know, that, in this case, combined with rumors of an acquisition published in the tech press, made for an uncomfortable and uncertain month leading up to the, to the announcement of the acquisition. The day the merger was announced really remains one of the more vivid moments in my career. I remember an announcement that it was happening, it probably came through email, and that we were to assemble at an offsite location that afternoon to meet with all of the people who would become our, our new colleagues, so people from Six Apart. We gathered in one of those Soma warehouse-style buildings as the Six Apart team arrived. I really think back at it as one of those awkward middle school dances. The room was split in two groups, and people didn't quite know how to interact with each other. You know, most didn't know what to make of the combination of the two companies or really how to engage with each other in those moments. I'm wondering how common is that scenario where you've got the two different teams that walk into a room and they're on the opposite <laughs> sides of the room? <laughs> Well, it's very common. You know, I'd love to talk about going back in time from that moment about what was going up to lead into that and how deliberate everything that Arthur is talking about kind of was. This is the starting gun going off. Uh, from there on in, it's a lot of endless communication and reinforcement of the underlying reasons. You cannot say that enough. What, what, that, from that point going forward, you are staying on script. And we had put a lot of effort into writing very clearly our FAQ. But the FAQ wasn't sent out to everyone and said, hey, read this. It was for managers and it was for executives to stay on point and to reinforce why are we doing this? What are we expecting next? And given all of the obvious questions you're going to have, like where's my role and what am I going to do? So you're saying it was pretty common. I guess you know the analogy Arthur used was around kind of like a middle school dance. And I'm wondering if maybe... You know, how common is it to take a different approach where it's more like a wedding party, where you've kind of assigned people <laughs> random seats across the different groups to see if that helps kind of break through some of those cultural barriers? I mean, I don't remember it being that awkward, but I do remember it was a cause of celebration. And there were, look, there were some very subtle things that Arthur mentioned there that were very deliberate decisions. For example, we did not hold that event in either of our offices. It was not like video egg suddenly welcoming all these refugees from Six Apart or the other way around. We went to a third place. Secondly, when, when, we, taught, when we had the announcements, it was Matt and Ben and Dave and 
etc. Talking about why this made sense, uh, we we made sure there was there was a sense of unity and that there was no one or the other like was you know acquiring the other. So th- that was a very deliberate decision. Is that why you guys also had a, a new joint name as well? Yes. Well, we well it's not the only reason why we had a new joint name, but it was an important part of having a new joint name. The hardest thing to leave behind was Shelly. Shelly was our little bird mascot, and that was everywhere. It was like the Pets.com sort of puppet of a video egg. Gotcha. So you gave up Shelly. Did you guys replace her with another mascot? No. I think the closest we came is we had a couple of like funny little cartoon characters, but uh, Shelly will be forever remembered. It was great walking through that. And um, one of the things I wanted to contrast that memory with was actually how the same Mini and Doxer deal came together, uh, particularly because now you've got this big company now buying a much smaller one. And I wanted to play a clip both from Dave as well as from John Vars, who was one of the founders of uh, Dogster. This was more of a typical lopsided acquisition with a larger company, ours, a few hundred buying a smaller one. I think Dogster was probably less than 10. That was really about proving to the Dogster team we genuinely cared about their mission content and weren't just a big content company acquiring eyeballs. I remember the first combined meeting, we had a full-on dog-themed pep rally with their CEO jumping out in a dog suit, um, all to show our combined commitment to their mission. They were really an amazing team, and just like the Typepad team, largely stayed with us for the long term and became part of the broader company and culture. Well, I felt good about having my company be acquired, but I felt, you know, we were a family. And so I felt very concerned about like how my team would land. And one thing, you know, that became kind of apparent in the negotiation process was that the leadership team at Say was really interested in the property we had built and page views and that audience that was really targeted and strong. But they were really only seriously interested in a couple of key people on the team. I mean, as much as we kept our team shielded from negotiations and due diligence, you know, as we got further into the integration, you know, members of my team definitely could feel, you know, a little bit sidelined. You know, one particular example was that Say had refused to pay out their accrued vacation because Say had an unlimited vacation policy. So it was like a little, you know, I was kind of feeling concerned for my team finding a good home. And I raised the issue uh, with Ken and one of the co-founders at a dinner quite early on in the process. And, and we managed to come up with some solutions. Um, we never fixed the vacation policy issue, but we did find ways to make the team feel welcome, um, which included like a big all hands, like welcoming party, which was pretty fun and a, a robust onboarding process. And we found like everybody on my daughter's team had a like a welcoming buddy to kind of help them on board from the safe side. So so it ended up working out pretty well, but it was pretty touch and go there for a while. So, you know, playing that clip, I feel like one of the lost opportunities was not taking the dogster mascot on after you guys gave up Shelly. <laughs> but like when, you know, one of the things I felt was interesting though, comparing what Dave said with what John said mm-hmm. was you know, Dave felt like expressed more optimism, but from John, I heard a, a little bit of a sense of fear almost. Uh, I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on that. And how did you feel during this time? And how did that play out in real time? Yes, it's really apparent, isn't it? They really did feel like an, an acquired company. And so it was very, very different from the Six Apart acquisition in that, or merger in that you are now 
basically taking a small team and a set of assets and bringing across what you well what you want what you need and and so you have a very different dynamic in the deal and how it feels to each side where the risks feel and frankly we missed this the first time round with uh with with the dogs deal john shared with me that no say media executive had visited the dogs or caster office other than for an acquisition deal meeting and that had all been kind of either offside or in hush hush we'd missed that that there was a lot of people in that organization that were actually fearful of their jobs the discussions had been more around the assets of dogster and caster and lots of back and forth about the value of the community and lots of back and forth about do we want to bring the entire team over or just bring over the assets and spin up our own kind of group and these 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 are reasonable discussions to be had but you can't lose sight of the fact that you are potentially damaging the ability to to integrate your organization well if people don't feel like they're being treated respectfully uh, all throughout through that process it doesn't mean they have to be guaranteed a job and that often doesn't happen even in the six apart acquisition from memory about 15% of the people in the in the combined organization were not in part of the go forward integration that was a very difficult set of decisions to be made but what we what we really missed with dogs are was just listening and just being empathetic and as soon as we were able to talk more freely about the acquisition my very first move was go get a burger with uh John and his team and everyone there and i and i i know that i was probably the first exec to turn up at their office and put a face on say media that wasn't as scary and answer their questions honestly as best as i could and as openly as i was allowed to and build a relationship from there and when 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 that happened it did change the dynamic dramatically trust is a very very delicate thing and it's one of those things that you can't just flip a switch once you've said hey like we're on the same team now and then bring it on especially if you've had interactions before and so i could see from john's perspective where you know if if at least from his team's perspective if they saw that you know it felt a little bit cagey in the beginning it's hard to even if there was this all hands party with the dog coming out to <laughs> to really like feel fully part of the team um cuz you know for months they're probably looking over their shoulders that that that's right and and that event was i think textbook in showing just how to make a group of people welcome in in an acquisition we replicated it because it was just so successful in setting the tone not just to welcome the people who were joining the company but to reinforce a message for everyone who was already at the company that these are new team members who are going to be part of say going for they're part of our tribe now and being able to send that message across the entire company it, it, it's powerful and just even by the end of that day I, you could notice you could feel the different dynamic going on doesn't mean all the issues are done with but the the fear will melt away and then you're really talking about how do we work really well together going forward and so you know you talked about how like one of the big misses was you know engaging them properly and early before the actual deal took place uh, i was wondering if there was you know there were any other big misses that you felt happened during that process of bringing docs on board so in the six about acquisition one of the things that we really really worked hard on what the go forward engineering and product teams would look like 
And we applied some very clear principles, including we are going to mix people together. We're not going to have like the old X video egg and the old six part teams and making sure that the day we announced that was the presentation we were running with. So people walked in the room and we had an answer to the number one thing on everybody's list. What am I going to be doing? But when you're talking about dogs to casta, I think it was probably, it felt a little bit more organic, a little bit more as case by case. And I will remember that one thing we, we did not have a very good answer on was the role of the community team going forward. And there was some real like back and forth on that. And that's not great. Yeah, I mean, that's perfect segue into one of the things I want to share from John, actually, what, uh, about, about the communities. One of the things that was a decision that you know was made in reverse and made in reverse a few times was around this Dogster community. So part of Dogster was a lot of authoritative content written by editors and you know professional authors who are experts in, but there was also a huge corpus of user-generated content, which was incredibly large and a passionate community and somewhat difficult to moderate. Um, and so, you know, we, you know, as we onboarded, we decided that we wanted to um, sunset that community just because it wasn't really aligned with the rest of, of save properties. But we reversed that because it was just so much traffic and the community was so passionate. Um, and so, you know, as soon as they caught wind that there, we might be sunsetting that community, they, you know, raised a ruckus. Um, and so we reversed that. And then a couple of years later, we made that decision again and reversed it. Um, I think we looked at the decision originally in a very, you know, analytical way, like, you know, basically from how monetizable those page views are compared to the authoritative content and user generated content just wasn't quite as monetizable. And you know, it was a lot of pages and a lot of maintenance, and a lot of moderation. And so I think the decision was just, hey, ROI isn't that great on these pages. Let's kill those. Um, but as we, you know, made that decision and got, you know, further along on executing, we realized that that was the soul of the community. And if we didn't have, you know, that community, we were going to have a lot less folks visiting those authoritative content pages. So I think it was just a decision that was made without looking at the full picture. Same media was essentially an, an ad network, or at least that was the biggest part of the business at that time, which is a very analytic, analytical uh, point of view and, and, you know, competency. And, you know, when you start acquiring community sites, it's different. And, you know, there's things that go beyond just straight up numbers. And I think that was a blind spot of same media in the early days. So I wanted to pause there and get your reaction to what John said. Do you agree with his assessment or did you have a different take? Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. He's, he's really coloring the, the challenges that we had with our community decisions. I mean, we, I think he's right. What we're talking about here is actually not necessarily bad decision making, although you know, that's a consequence or a symptom of of a bigger issue, which is that you run into with many of these sorts of acquisitions and mergers is that we're, we're fundamentally talking about the cultural aspects of what Video Egg was 
but six of power as well. These little, these smaller sort of companies of content and community companies that we're bringing in, and how difficult it is to bring it all together because we literally had a certain bias, and we operate in a certain way, and you get a different company coming in, creating the magic of a content site that actually engages an audience and a community that's super passionate like the dogs the community was and they're just different skill sets they're different mindsets and and i don't think we knew how to talk the same language and and so as a result like we missed it we just we just didn't understand that what this would mean and at the same time i i would put back on the dogster caster people is that maybe they also missed that they hadn't been and didn't have a story for how to really make the community a powerful part of the media story. So they didn't, for example, help us craft either how we are going to monetize this better or they didn't necessarily help us articulate how it was an acquisition vehicle for readers or that it was maybe a place to discover great content producers. So there were ways that we could have brought that into the sort of the media media platform story, but it just wasn't wasn't done by either party because I don't think we 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 had the common lingo. No, I think that's a great point. Just around the importance of having a shared language to be able to integrate teams. Exactly. You know, one thing I picked up on from what John said, and this is again, this was after Say Media became one unit that then bought his company. But he talked about how the culture was very much analytical, ROI-driven, and very different than theirs. And I wanted to play a clip from Rachel Woolen. Talks about how those two companies, VideoEgg and Six Apart, had come together and what the differences were there. So I'd love to hear more and contrast how those mergers went. Not only were we trying to integrate teams, but we were really trying to preserve the best-in-breed DNA from both teams. The Six Apart team, led by... Ben Trot and Mina Trot had a very methodical, even keel, consumer first mentality and a ton of institutional knowledge of working with creators from the typepad business. And then juxtapose that with uh, the team led by Dave Lerman and, and Matt Sanchez. You know, Dave, being the CTO, had an incredibly persistent, you know, visionary uh, capability. And he was also the type of founder who wanted to put an MVP out there and then iterate to product market fit. And he had this mentality where I think one time he told me that he had found success by running into a wall, backing up and then running into another wall. You know, they basically just stumbled into the ad tech space and found success after persistence. Dogster, Six Apart, Video Egg had these very different strengths and none of it would have worked if we didn't respect each other's strengths and see that there is an opportunity to work towards a common purpose and it took relationship and trust building and learning each other's language to sort of get there that's great and another big factor in determining culture of the people themselves I'm curious to learn more about how you manage talent during these integrations. And John actually shared something pretty interesting about the types of people who succeeded in each type of environment. For Dogster, we were earlier stage startup and, you know, much smaller. And at those sort of companies, you tend to have a lot of generalists. 
So you have folks who are jack of all trades, but perhaps masters of none. Whereas same media was, you know, you know, nearly 400 people at that time was much further along, was nearly like 100 million in revenue. And there were, frankly, a lot more specialists. So, you know, some of our team had the experience and skills to adapt and fit in and kind of fit into that specialist role. But others just couldn't find the right spot because they were generalists and ended up you know, churning turning out after a while. So for me, really, the regret I have, or, you know, in hindsight being 2020, I just would have tried to, you know, work harder to identify the people who are generalists and offer them a softer landing rather than having them go through the experience of joining a new company, struggling to find a place, feeling crappy about themselves and then, and then quitting, which, you know, that's not, it wasn't their fault at all. It was just a difference in, you know, how the company was set up and at what stage they were at. How do you feel about, about what John just said? Well, there's a lot of truth in that, right? By definition, there was people that, that uh, couldn't really find a home. And again, I'm contrasting the six apart versus Dogster case. What we did right the first time was look very critically at all the roles we needed, who were the best fit for those roles. Now, it was very difficult because we couldn't interview people. We couldn't you know, get into the really assessing everything. We had to go a lot on what the various managers knew about their teams. But we, I would say, did a better job of figuring out uh, what the go forward would look like. And even then, there were people in the six apart case that didn't didn't stay for uh, for that long. I think it, what we did right the first time, we probably ought to looked much more in the second time with uh, with the smaller acquisition. I think we probably thought it was going to be easier. It's just different. It's not necessarily easier. It's just a different dynamic. One thing that I wanted to, that you mentioned a while earlier that I want to touch on here, you mentioned that same media ended up initially laying off 15% of the folks who were from like the combined video wagon six apart groups. And I was kind of wondering if you were able to speak a little bit more to what factored into that decision making and if any of that had to relate with this whole generalist or specialist dichotomy. I don't recall us sitting down and saying who's a generalist and who's a specialist. But I think we probably did that implicitly because we did this, quote unquote, the right way, and I'll still stand by that, which is we first of all decided on what roles we needed in the combined entity. So effectively, a media company looks like this, and as it was, we're talking about the vast majority of people had a role going forward because we'll we'll bring together two teams of very different skills. And, and capabilities. And we had, you know, we wanted to bring those teams together because we really wanted to amp up our transition to being a true media company. I worked with leadership across both companies and I highlighted, given our understanding of the organization that we wanted to in the go forward, where there were duplicate roles, where there were potentially two people in the same seat where there were perhaps also gaps that maybe somebody who's in a seat could move over to that. And you can't, as I said, go and interview the individuals. You, you have to work through your best understanding based on those that actually are in the know that the acquisition is happening or the merger is actually happening. And so it's super hard to just see a bunch of names of people with jobs today that no, and no knowledge of the pending change. You may not have a job tomorrow. 
some you've even met, some you haven't met. And, and you have to just step back and say, I'm going to run this process with absolute integrity and empathy where I can and build and, know, and work with the various uh, stakeholders, the managers who ultimately need to make the decision about who's going to be in their team going forward, but with the best information that we have available. And I'm not going to let this be just a, a quick exercise. I actually, I do remember making this a, lo- a, a longer and more thorough exercise because I cared than what I think we probably could have done or got away with because I really wanted to make sure that, that we were having complete sort of integrity thoroughness and that we could stand by any of the hard decisions that we we're making. You know, you were saying that everyone was pretty diligent about it, took it very seriously, but you were asking questions to make sure that we were making the right calls and going through the right process. I was wondering if any decisions changed as, you know, maybe a manager said, here was my list. And then they talked to some more folks and they said, <laughs> actually, I need to make a different decision. Yes. Well, absolutely things happen. And so this is the messiness of, uh, of going through this process, particularly given that these things don't happen in a week. Gosh, I want to say that this was months where we were under sort of due diligence and not able to talk about it, as Arthur alluded to before. But in, the, in that course, you get all sorts of things that happen. For example, some people quit, right? So now you had somebody in a seat who's no longer even, even with the company. At the end of the day, you, you have to make a decision. And so at some point, you just have to lock in and say, this is it. This is what we're going to move forward with. Because you can't completely, you can't relitigate over and over again. There's way too much more you have to get done. So one way to sort of characterize this is that it's an important step. But at some point, you have to lock and load and say, okay, we've had three iterations of this. It looks right. But now I need to spend my time working with, say, my executive counterparts to make sure that our marketing is all in plan. Or I was uh, working on, uh, in particular with Dave and Ben, on, okay, now that we know who's going to be in the team, how do we break those teams down into squads so we can actually go tackle all the problems? And so, you know, we talked about all the challenges that, and the difficult decisions you had to make when choosing who to keep. But once you made the decisions, you had to bring all these teams together make sure they felt warm and then they felt bought in and that they felt excited about the next part of the journey. And I wanted to share something that Arthur mentioned about that whole social integration and morale piece. It was really clear during that time how much the people mattered during the transition and how much we all internalized that view. But shortly after the merger, I remember internally co-founding the same media cheerleading group. You know, the rationale was, let's support the cross-company com- cross soccer team. You competed in San Francisco against other companies. It also happened to be a really nice way for the teams across Six Apart and VideoAg, the former teams, to really come together around, around something new and different. When then the, the acquisition of Dogster and Catster was announced, we welcomed the new teams through the office through a cheer tunnel. I don't know if I was voluntold or if I volunteered myself, but I can just imagine Ken standing in the corner, rolling his eyes with a smirk as the dogster teams run through our, ran through our cheer tunnel with our pom-poms raised. I'm pretty sure that Arthur volunteered quite happily. <laughs> I think he's a product manager that missed his true cheer calling. Look, it's just fantastic to, to think back on how we built sort of a, a social culture there. And I, I'll, I'll, I'll be quick to point out, yes, we had legendary parties just like many other company, companies and, and all the, the very best and most impactful things just cost us so little. 
uh, game nights, whiskey tastings, bitter makings. We had a book club. It was just something we chose to invest in and allow. You can't mandate it. You can't fake it. We just empowered like people like Arthur, go and form a social group. Great. Go and do it. You want a cheer tunnel? Sounds great. Just allow those interpersonal connections and cross-functional cross-function, like, trust to build. We, we did serious work, but we let our hair down too. And I think in a culture where you're bringing on a lot of teams and where sometimes there is this fear, at least from the company that's being bought, as to you know, what their next day will look like, I think being brought into these parties or brought into these, you know, like these very welcoming all-hands exhibitions uh, is a good way to feel like you're part of the team. For sure. And one of the things that John was saying that you guys did a great job of as well, and he actually singled you out on this one, was around the types of trainings and workshops you did as you integrated the team. And the thing that's, that's very often missed is the part that trains people how to work together. So how to have difficult conversations, how to create shared language, you know, how to hold each other accountable, and stay really invested in training and workshops and you know, conversations for the team in these areas. I remember Ken you know, doing an amazing how to give and how to receive feedback session and training. Um, they also brought in folks to teach us public speaking. We had executive coaches. We had training on how to have difficult conversations and how to hold each other accountable. So I think those kind of two pieces combined of, you know, the social aspect of it and getting to know and trust people along with this sort of, you know, training on how to work together, you know, really made for this strong culture. Something I'm very passionate about, right? And yet it is a difficult decision because you have to choose to invest in this. And it's, uh, it's not something that has very clear ROI necessarily. I think that the key to making this work was to let the team decide on what was important for them to learn. And that would tell me a lot about where I was falling down, maybe, or where, where they were concerned on certain things. And, and I had to trust that our shared set of values would mean that we came up with the right things. Things like how to have tough conversations, giving feedback was, I think, from memory, like one of the top picks from the team. And that's just really reinforcing to know that that, that is the culture you're creating. But we also started to encourage team members to put their own training together. So what was it? You, so this has a double whammy. What do you want to learn or get become a master at? And then how can you turn around and teach that to the rest of the team? Those were, those were hard things for me to let go of, but I think they paid off. Yeah, and I think one of the great parts about that and having the team buy into doing those trainings themselves is it sparks a self-starter culture, right? Like the fact that they, mm-hmm. that they started leading some trainings, it naturally means that they're going to feel like even informally when they're not leading a formal training, they can share things they've learned with others. And it, it fosters this like upward spiral that I think mm. really helps foster a, a high-performing, high, uh, highly effective team. So interesting. I, I, I hadn't thought about that entirely, but I think you're right. It had these spillover effect. Circling back to the point earlier around how it was hard initially to have a shared language because of all the different cultures, like bringing the teams together around how they wanted to deliver constructive feedback and grow together. I think these workshops allowed you to build that shared language. Yes, absolutely. When I was a consultant, we, we did a few different trainings and workshops. To be completely honest, there was only one that I really liked and remembered. <laughs> uh, and 
It was, it was, uh, we did an improv thing. We all went off site. It was an improv comedy workshop. And it's kind of in hindsight, you know, for a strategy consultant, I wouldn't have thought that was like the train that I found the most unique and valuable, but it was all about how you brainstorm and how you say yes. And, and I find it really relevant to what I do now in product, because, you know, a lot of times what you do in product is you have to delicately and politely say no. And if that's all you're doing day after day, it can be a little bit too easy to have a mentality where your first reaction is, oh, I don't want to do that. It's not on the roadmap. And I think being able to reflect on that experience from time to time and try to say, you know, how can I be, how can I have a yes and or foster a yes and moment here? Even if I have to say no in the end, how can I build on it? <laughs> right. Good. Yeah. You don't want it to be yes. And that's the worst idea I've ever heard. <laughs> I love how this feedback was bi-directional that you said that you also encourage the team to give you feedback. And it, I think it takes a culture and a leadership team that has very low ego and high you know, emotional intelligence. And I wanted to share something that Rachel said to those points. I was always really impressed by how well Dave, the video egg CTO and Ben, the six apart CTO gelled and, you know, really both had very, very low ego, high EQ. And, you know, then you layer on pros like Ken Sandy and our, our VP of, of product and David Zabrowski, our VP of engineering. They did a great job of communicating throughout the transition creating transparency when a decision got made and you didn't quite understand that decision. That really ensured that we worked together through inevitable culture clashes along the way. And from my perspective, the team integration was probably the most successful aspect. Huge, you're talking about the, the low ego and high emotional intelligence. And I wonder if you have a story. Story is actually probably not the greatest about me, but it definitely highlights how the peer team members helped each other. During my one-on-ones, I generally would default to a mode of, I would set this as an expectation. It's like, my job is to help you be successful. One of the things you're going to see me do is to push and challenge you. So I want to know that every time you get up on stage or you're talking to Matt or some other senior person, that you're absolutely shining. And sometimes I'm going to find a, a gap in your logic or your data, and I'm going to ask you to, to, to go think about it more. And generally, that was well understood. I would freely admit that that was not everyone's cup of tea. And there was one team member who was a director level who really started to, to flounder. And I wasn't quite sure what was going on. And Apparently, he didn't feel like he could approach me, but he did approach one of his uh, peer team members, another director of product management. And he basically said, look, I'm having a real problem with Ken. Every time I'm trying to talk to him about something, he just wants to shut me down or he's just poking all the holes at all this stuff. He's not appreciating my work. And... The director of product manager, the, one, the other one who was, um, who was listening to him, said, that's what I love about our team culture. Like, Ken is pushing us to be our absolute best. And I love the fact that I can go in to a meeting and get pushed and, and, and challenged so I can have my, think, my thinking even better. So when I go back to the team, I am clear on why we're doing something. What, what I loved about that was that the peer 
was able to be vulnerable and share that and then have a perspective that was able to turn around that other person of thinking and to give me that feedback. I realized that I'd been doing something that was driving the wrong outcomes. And so I was also able to adapt. I got to tell you, there was a massive turnaround. In fact, both our behaviors, I was much more thoughtful about uh, any critique I was giving and, and he was much more relaxed and laid back about um, having that critique. And even to this day, I will get phone calls to say, hey, can I bounce off an idea off you? I think it's a bad idea. I just want to check my logic. That's great. Yeah, openness and trust is very key in being able to build a high-performing team. And I think that it's great that you are able to get on the same page with, uh, with your director and that you guys have this strong bond even still. Yeah, and, and I want to point out that that's not a rosy picture. Like, it's not like, oh, everything was just fine. Like, there was something wrong that I was missing as a leader. And my direct didn't feel comfortable bringing that drop directly to me. And because we had invested in these strong peer relationships, we were able to still catch it. Thanks for sharing that. I wanted to dive into something a little different next, which is the impact of physical space on culture and relationships. I'll start by sharing something from Arthur. Before the acquisition, it felt like we were already at capacity in the video egg offices. So this combination of two companies coming together, but each of the teams from each company remained where they were, you know, it continued as well when, when the additional publications came on board, Bogster, Castor, ReadWrite, Remodelista. In this period of time where it felt truly critical for the, the company, the combined teams to start internalizing the importance of these newly combined value propositions, in that time that was so important to do that, we actually reinforced the differences with our physical space. Of course, there's a practical limit. Not everyone can sit next to everyone. You can't just collect information by, by being near someone or through osmosis. But at that point, we were still pretty small. We were still around 200. Yeah, I, I remember what Arthur is talking about, and there was definitely problems. But I also want to point out that we were limited to, you know, you suddenly acquire some more, more uh, particularly uh, standalone media sites that don't come with a lot of product and engineering or or account managers or salespeople, but they have a part of like editors and managers and they have to work kind of in their own style still. So we, we did have to make some trade-offs there, but I will say the majority of the executives were the first to volunteer for the basement. And then we brought down some of the other like teams that might've otherwise be kind of, you know, if you think about your traditional media company sort of on the top floor kind of thing like the, the, the head editors and all of those sorts of things, they all went down to the basement. So we were really thoughtful about not inadvertently sending some messages that some teams were more important than others and engineering would just be relegated to the basement. That never happened. I think that's really powerful that the executive team volunteered for the, the least attractive space. You know, you hear about these stories and you kind of like, yeah, you know, that sounds all very trite. But then when you actually see someone do it and what it can do in terms of sending a message is, uh, and just the willingness to do it. I mean, it wasn't, there wasn't even a debate. It wasn't like, uh, should we do it? It was, just, it was just done. We've talked a lot about how you built a great team, but the same media company ended up not lasting, right? I wanted to kind of dive yeah. a little bit more into why that happened. It's a typical sort of trap of over-investing in dying businesses. Um, it seemed like we didn't go through that start, stop, continue exercise quickly enough. We inherited, maintained, and integrated two businesses that were dying. And look, we had the luxury of 
being able to use that $100 million round um, in order to start the premium publisher business. Uh, but we didn't really have a game plan for what to do on the typepad side. And we continued investing heavily in the, the golden goose on the, the video egg ad networks. And as a result of that, it was really difficult to pull resources into the new growth area on the media side. We poured a lot of resources into the media business through acquisition of Dogster and Revolisa, and as well as giving media deals to Jane Pratt and others. Um, but it took too long, in my opinion, you know, several years to shift adequate resources to fully realize the vision of what it would actually be mean to be a media platform or a publishing platform. I'd also say that we made a bet on premium publishers, both paying us as a platform, um, you know, paying us through media dollars. And this was really a time when publishing was going through a, a transformation, um, almost an existential crisis. And, you know, these publishers might have needed us, but they were also so stuck in their ways of trying to figure out what to do in a, a digital world. Would you agree with their assessment? Yes, in many ways I do. First of all, as an executive, I hold some responsibility for not moving faster, particularly given that I, I was head of product. So there was definitely opportunities for a much more aggressive shift. Uh, we were shifting, but I think she's right that we did not shift fast enough. We also did not shift aggressively enough into the type of platform that we wanted to build. I think conceptually, it was really brilliant. When you think about what the next generation of media companies needed, we'll, we'll let you take care of content and engaging your audience and we'll kind of do the rest. That was our vision. I think that's pretty compelling and I think it's still compelling today. I think we didn't move fast enough to just really double down on that. We, Can I ask why not? Because of momentum. So we, we had a tight pad group. Um, we didn't quite know what to do with it, that Rachel was mentioning. Didn't take a lot of engineering time, but it was something we're still managing. And we had a lot of people in the room had been building out ad network, and that was constantly, you know, come on, that's a that's a that's a revenue engine for the company. You can't just walk away from it. So we had to innovate on those things. Uh, we were trying to do too much. I think there's one thing that I'm in fierce, fierce agreement on, and I think was the big distraction for us: a shift away in strategy from the media platforms perspective of investing in a platform that we can have many, many different sites join to one where we had attempted to build greenfield owned and operated sites. And the investment that goes into basically creating a, making a bet that you can come up with a media site that can go overnight to have 2 million active users reading it. I think we had no idea that that, of what that would really take. And we went and employed a lot of people with that expertise all of a sudden. I found myself increasingly struggling to emphasize the platform message. I struggled personally with the notion of building a lot of owned and operated websites and you know, each of those taking out of our fundraising you know, $2 million a pop, right? It just didn't make sense to me. To Rachel's point, had we maybe just amped that up a little bit and then not distracted us with owned and operated properties, 
I think uh, I think we could have had a different story. Do you know what led to that decision? Because you know there were clear opportunity costs there from investing away from what what seemed like the future. As you do in many many media companies, you have a platform versus sort of editorial content kind of like tension that's always going to be there, or a brand tension. Do you, you have a stable of brands, the content brands that people love and come to, and the platform that powers them is often hidden underneath. And it really, really wasn't apparent to me until I realized that we weren't making investment in the platform to support all these sites like I was hoping. You know, in some ways, I was kind of thinking maybe these are complementary. Maybe if we do these sites, they will drive innovation and, and, and quicker advance on the platform. They started to feel a little bit one-offy. They felt like that, that the platform was becoming kind of an afterthought to creating the, and launching the site. And uh, there was definitely, you know, strong people in the room with different points of view. And all of those are valid. They, we needed to hear each other out. I just felt that uh, maybe we weren't landing on the side that I would have potentially preferred. And um, I don't know if I dealt with it that well. I, I, I left the company. I, I definitely expressed frustration. But at the same time, that was coming from maybe a, a, a struggle to affect change. As we, particularly as we rapidly added very senior people, members to the exec team who were fair and square coming from the, the publisher content brand management side who didn't understand the power of platform. How did that change the culture? Powerfully. I thought they were fantastic websites. And I was very proud of being part of bringing some of those, uh, some, or my small part of helping to bring those into the world. But I just, the scalable, powerful platform that we could have built for thousands of these websites that could have joined us willingly without us having to invest from scratch each one of them and make selective, you know, that sort of the three-tiered strategy of, let, let them join and use the platform and then we'll acquire ones that we think make sense, you know, knowing the economics and making just really informed choices. I just really believed in that. And just seeing that kind of not become the conversation anymore was very, very, very frustrating. And then feeling like I was failing my team. And so I was asking them to step up in ways that I didn't even really believe in. And that's tough. And I think on record, it didn't work out. And the company went through this kind of rapid uh, downsizing. This is after I had left. It was pretty clear, clear within like a year or so that this model wasn't going to work. We're burning through too much cash. And so it collapsed back down again to really focus back on the platform. One of the things you mentioned just a short while ago was around the company ended up having to downsize a bit that you still had strong relationships with the rest of the, the team and that there was a strong culture there. And I want to share something from a number of folks who were part of that journey um, as to how they viewed that culture. I was at Say Media for about 11 years. It was my first job out of college. So the majority of my long-term friends and professional network are people I met through Say. We were around for so long with so many big pivots but I got to work with more than a thousand amazing employees over the years. So it's a big alumni network. Somehow we really lucked out and got to work with amazing people personally and professionally. I dragged a bunch of them to my current startup and I still call XA people when I need professional advice. 
Um, in fact, I just spent an hour last night on the phone with my ex-co-founder and my new CEO just talking through strategy and brainstorming together. There was something special there. I'd say true, almost magic. Maybe it was a combination of people, place. Maybe it was what we were working on, what we were working on, though I doubt it a bit. In reality, how much, how much magic can come from a team who's building ad services and content management systems. But really, there was something special there. It was a group of people who cared about doing what we were doing right. And that was, that was, it was amazing. You know, people from Say Media at that time are still connected to each other 10 years later. And individuals who worked there from Video Egg, Six Apart, Dogster, others, they've all gone on to have pretty incredible and influential careers in other organizations. One of the reasons I took my role at Spotify was that I caught a glimpse of that culture. Of course, it's not the same. It's not the same people, place, time, a very different product. But I've been experimenting since then with my own teams to try to find that magic combination, to find that culture. Uh, even to get an attempt at finding something that resembles what we had at Say. The culture at Say was definitely unique and strong and lasting. And you know, I learned a lot from that. And I think it's because uh, the leadership at Say realized that culture you know, has multiple parts. And I think the first part is pretty obvious and usually folks get this right. But this is like you know, the social events, uh, the events that allow folks to get to know each other, and, you know, to find commonalities, to develop empathy for each other and build trust. The culture at Same Media was, for me, super unique in terms of mergers and acquisitions. In my career, I've actually gone through six. And so, you know, in looking back at all of them, I can say that Same Media was the most unique. I remember pretty clearly when the Dogster founders came to the team and um, were informing us about the acquisition, the merger, they said, you know, it's like we're going home to the mothership. Everyone there is super smart. They work really hard. Everyone believes in the mission. And no one there is an asshole. Literally no one. For them to come back to us and say these, these words, it, it, really, it really hit home. And so, you know, it was true. The, the, the Say team was very welcoming. They, they did everything to make us feel at home. And I believe that the founders of uh, Say Media were quite passionate about bringing the right culture to the org. Well, I think first you really have to look at the founders of Video Egg, Dave and Matt, and the founders of Six Apart, Ben and Mina. They were all really high-integrity founders, and they recruited a number of fantastic high-integrity people into their organizations in the early days. And many, many of those people stayed through the transition and you know, stayed for many years. I think that speaks to you know, the, the durability of the relationships that they built. And I think they all understood, you know, as we used to say in Video Egg, advertising pays the bills. But that wasn't our purpose. And, you know, especially Matt and Dave, when they took, you know, kind of the more of the leadership roles at Same Media, they did a great job of cultivating a place where you wanted to show up and give your best. And you knew that, that giving your best might mean that it resulted in, you know, more media dollars spent. Who cares about that? But what you really cared about was that you were building something with your friends. And, 
you know, you believe that you're on that, that, that rocket ship, but it wasn't just about the money. It was about the experience that we were having together. A lot of us were in the right time in our lives to be building these enduring friendships. We spent a lot of time after hours really getting to know each other, hosting dinner parties, going out to concerts, playing soccer together. They threw damn good parties, South by Southwest and the launch of the Jane magazine. And, you know, kind of like looking back, even the, the outside leaders that they brought in over the course of time when I was working there were really just incredible people. Our, uh, our CFO, Lee, went on to be the CFO of Twilio, who took them public. Our chief strategy officer, David, went on to be like an SVP and chief strategy officer at uh, Uber. And our head of design, Alex, now is like the head of design at Airbnb. So really like amazing people, even outside of the the amazing culture we've built in product engineering from Ken and, and Stork. And... You know, to this day, I, I really believe the Safe family is still one of my strongest networks of, of friends. How did you feel hearing all those great memories? Wow. That's hard not to tear up. You know, you know, it was a great company because so many people who were there at the time not only went on to do great things, but go out of their way to stay in touch with each other today and to continue to network and build each other up and, and be there for each other. And I think there's something really super enduring about a company that, that dies, but still its culture lives on. And, uh, and I will I'll always remember it to be actually one of the most special moments of my, my career. And then you also wrote about this experience recently, correct? I've recently uh, written a book called The Influential Product Manager, How to Lead and Launch Successful Technology Products. You know, there's much more than say in these pages, but say is a big part of it. And it touches on some of the things we talked about today, but it goes way, way beyond that. And it also talks as an independent contributor, product manager level, what are the things that I saw my team do well? So how did they get their, their uh, how did they collaborate with their teams effectively? How did they um, manage stakeholders well? How did they uh, choose and drive the right behaviors through metrics well? Well, I'll have to pick it up and we'll have to re- reconnect. Yeah, no problem, mate. And uh, thanks for the opportunity to go in deep here. It's very interesting, very reflective, and uh, definitely helped me see some patterns that I don't think I even really fully had understood. It wasn't easy. It was a lot of really tough calls along the way. But the one thing that, that I think anchored us was the sets of principles and values that just made things easier to kind of find the right answer. Well, Ken, thank you so much for joining the podcast. You're welcome. And it was an absolute pleasure, Jay. If you enjoyed this episode, it'd mean a lot if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. If you have ideas or feedback, visit us at wickedhearddecisions.com or feel free to find me on LinkedIn and send me a message. Thanks for tuning in. And until next time.